I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book nine, The Ghost at Dawn's House. Time to get spooky. Okay. So it's going for one <laughs> sentence summaries. So mine's pretty straightforward. I felt like this book didn't exactly do it to me. Do it, do it to me. Do it for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know that ghost. <laughs> So my summary is Dawn finds a hidden passage in her very, 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 very old house. Nice. That's it. Um, Mine is Dawn delves. Oh, is that it? (laughs) (laughs) Mine is Dawn delves into the history of white people in Stony Brook while exploring her house and scaring herself and her friends. All of our summaries are very similar today. Mine is 12-year-old uncovers potentially haunted secret passage connecting her house to her barn, and that's somehow supposed to relate to babysitting, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair. Oh, you guys, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Anna Chukala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. If you're up for it, rate and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook, or write us a note. We have a PO box at Twenty Five Bradford Court. I'm kidding. It's a Gmail inbox. <laughs> write us at Stuck in Stony Brook at gmail.com. And you can also send us information there if you want us to. Uh, hypothesize about your BSC big five and let you know what, what different proportions of the different sitters you are. Send us a little uh, paragraph about your personality and we will analyze it. So, Anne, what'd you, what'd you think about this book? It's interesting that our summaries are all kind of the same. Yeah. Cause this book was boring. Oh <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, the book is, you know, it's, it's called the ghost at Don's house, which is, you know, pretty much what the book is about. Um, Don, as we all know, lives in this very old house made for short people. And it's she's so been looking so old. She's been looking for some sort of hidden passage for a while. And this is this is the this is the book where she finally gets serious about it and starts knocking on walls and stuff. Um, and then she finds a hidden passage and she learns about some of the history of Stony Brook, which had an E at the end for a while. Um, very important <laughs> very important and you know in at the end we eventually found out we solved part of the mystery because spoiler alert it's nikki pike he's going into the hidden passage to like hide because he's being kind of bullied by his brothers the triplets and he doesn't want to spend time with those four pike girls Blech. oh i know because the girls are disgusting <laughs> And yeah, I mean, do you guys have anything else to add to that? That's sort of my uh, plot synopsis. Yeah, not a ton happens. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, I thought it was good. I still liked it. I'm not, I'm not going to throw shade, especially on any of the first 10 books, because I've read them 150 times. Um, but I think that's about accurate. Emily, anything big that jumped out at you, overview wise? Well, I was just rereading the back of the book. And the second part of the paragraph is like, Dawn is sure there's a ghost in her house. So are the other babysitters, but they're so busy with their babysitting jobs. They hardly have time for a ghost hunt. I'm like, that's just generating conflict that didn't exist in the book. (laughs) Or explaining how the random, totally unrelated babysitting chapters have remotely anything to do with the central ghost plot. Yeah. I was like, all right. Um, I remembered liking this book, but it really, it was a bit of a drag for me, honestly. You just want to hang out with Dawn more. Yeah. Yeah. But like, they eat such weird, quote unquote, health food in this book. I was like, what is happening? (laughs) Yeah, can we talk about that? Let's talk about the salad cheese. Yeah. 
Well, the whole dinner together is is really bizarre. It comes up early 15. in chapter two. Yeah, page fifteen. I wrote it down because I was appalled. Go ahead, Anne. Why don't you read it? It's the top of fifteen. Jeff and I fix a salad with cottage cheese, pineapples, peaches, and coconut topping, and heated up a vegetable casserole that Mom had made over the weekend. Okay, so this is a loose interpretation of what a salad is. <laughs> no, no, don't don't forget the rest of it. Oh, okay. Um, then we brewed some herbal tea. Christy kids us, but Mom and Jeff and I really like health food. We ate health food in California. And I think that's something about us that won't change, no matter how long we live on the East Coast. What? <laughs> okay. That salad sounds disgusting. But you know what? It's in, like, I, I have a few of those, like, um, you know, Better Homes and Gardens and, like, Sunset Magazine uh, cookbooks from the 50s and early 60s. Looks like, full-color, like, lurid-looking illustrations. Like, it's like a 50s housewife yes. salad. It's like there would be a gelatin layer or something. And you mm-hmm. use canned peaches and canned pineapple yep. and dried coconut. Yeah. The dried it's coconut just really weird. doesn't fit to me. <laughs> That's the weird part? <laughs> I will say because yeah, it's I, kind of amazing. I did eat something similar to this as a child, maybe because my parents were old, but I I would get those like little pineapple rings in the can, right? Mm-hmm. And then I put that on top of some cottage cheese, and then I would stick mm-hmm. half a banana in the hole <laughs> of the pineapple. So maybe okay. I mean. <laughs> and my parents are older than Anne's even, and we would have cottage cheese with canned peaches together mm-hmm. but no one called it a salad first no, of all it was not a salad and, and it was not like a side with dinner it was like a snack or maybe like a light lunch or like breakfast maybe yeah emily's just making like the strongest disgust me well first of all i lived in the central valley of california which is like the agricultural bolt belt of the country yeah <laughs> we didn't ever eat anything out of a can mm-hmm. <laughs> ever mm-hmm. But well, that's the, the difference Coast. between your mom being born in 1959 and my mom being born in 1936. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. What's the difference? Um, yeah. It's it's really, it's really, I just don't feel like that, even in 1987, that that was considered health food. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I also well, think even if you thought that that was tasty, that you wouldn't serve it with like a hot vegetable casserole. Yeah. It's a weird meal. <laughs> yeah, we should, since we're on the topic of Dawn's diet, we should talk about the ice cream cone, which in itself is a mystery. Okay, so Dawn and Jeff, Dawn and Jeff find the end of an ice cream cone in the passage, and it wasn't there when Dawn first found the passage, so she's freaked out that there's like a ghost eating ice cream in the passage. But Anne, you were particularly taken with how they described it. Okay, so Dawn says... I think it's part of an ice cream cone. I said, although Jeff and I have eaten maybe two cones in our health food lives. Really, replied Jeff. I thought ice cream cones were kind of yellow and, you know, airy looking. And they have flat bottoms, don't they? Remember that time Dad took us to Dairy Queen? What's left of that thing, he went on, is brown and hard and has a pointed bottom. You know, I think this is an old-fashioned ice cream cone, I said. I felt scared, awed, and excited at the same time. Okay, this is like this is like they're aliens. I don't care what kind of health food net you are. Everyone knows what an ice cream cone looks like. <laughs> well, this is where I think, and I think we'll see this a lot throughout the series of Anna Martin as a like New Jerseyite and then transplanted into New York, describing what she thinks Californians do. Yeah, what does she eat? Hot as cheese <laughs> with canned fruit, apparently. And they don't know what ice cream cones look like. To be fair, we don't know if they're canned here. You and I ate canned fruit with cottage cheese and, but Dawn doesn't specify. They could be fresh pineapple and peaches. Okay, there is not fresh pineapple on the East Coast. <laughs> or it's not good if there is. I, we live on the East Coast. Their produce is shit. Sorry, East Coast listeners. We love you. <laughs> We're just snobs about produce because we come from America's bread basket. So, I was this? I remember you talking about how you get, you get, was it, um, uh, Claudia and the Phantom phone calls you thought was really spooky and you got scared. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Did, did, was this book too scary for you? So I had an advantage with this book, which is I remembered very clearly 
that it was Nikki Pike. And I had, uh, you know, with Claudia, I knew, I mean, I knew that it was Alan Gray too, I guess. I, I thought it was less spooky than Claudia and the Phantom phone calls, maybe because the, you know, I'm just less afraid of ghosts in general. The specter in Claudia and the Phantom phone calls is that there might be this like criminal who's going to come rob you while you're babysitting and you could be in, you and the kids could be in actual physical danger from a real oh, life. Here human. we go again. Phantom bashing. <laughs> 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 Sorry, hashtag justice for the phantom. But the, you know what I mean? It's it's the difference between a, a threat that exists in the real world and a supernatural threat. So I find ghost stories less scary than stories about, you know, robbers and murderers and things like that. Although I think I, I still agree with Emily's thesis that the phantom should not be in jail for the rest of his life because he didn't hurt anybody. But thinking about being like a vulnerable person babysitting and somebody watching you through the window is creepier than maybe there's a ghost. I don't know. What do you guys think? Mm, I don't like scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nina likes scary. That. Let's talk about I don't like scary. I think the three of us are all in I don't like scary. <laughs> That's our like category. And so psychology-wise, I found myself thinking a lot in this book about why do people like scary? Um, and it's really interesting to me specifically that, you know, it's true throughout the series that both Dawn and Claudia are really into getting freaked out and mysteries and you know, ghosts and all kinds of things that um, make them scared. And one of the, it's not really a subplot, but one of the motifs in this book is that Dawn is consistently sitting down with this book she checked out of the library of really scary stories. And even when she's feeling really scared, because she's legitimately worried about somebody being in the passage, she's sitting down and reading the book of scary stories. Um, and so I did a little bit of a, of a literature review of kind of why people like scary things and what kinds of people like scary things. Do you, do, do you guys have any idea, like, before I talk about the actual literature, why it is that you don't like scary things? Uh, anxiety and depression. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. So extrapolate farther from that. Why do you, why do you think um, being an anxious person or having experiences with depression might affect whether or not you like scary things? So first of all, I mean, plenty of people that have anxiety and depression do like scary things. I think there's sort of an underlying thing that might be more related. I don't know. I feel like this is a test and I didn't get to study for it. <laughs> no. no, let me ask it in a different way. What don't you like when you have to watch a scary thing or when you accidentally watch a scary thing? What about it is uh, like upsetting? What don't you, what is not enjoyable? Well, I don't like seeing, I don't like anticipation. I don't like being startled. I don't like knowing like I like the feeling of knowing something bad is going to happen, but not when is very, uh, makes me very anxious and makes me feel very physically uncomfortable. Um, okay. So that, that intolerance of uncertainty and the physiological effects of anxiety, you do not enjoy. No. Yeah. How about you, Em? Uh-uh. Yeah. <laughs> Same Z's. Same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's not super surprising. So, so one thing is that there's a positive relationship between what's called sensation seeking and people that really like horror movies, suspense, scary stories. Um, so sensation seeking is just the idea of needing things in your environment that are really stimulating. So people that like to go bungee jumping or surfing or skydiving. Oh, this or... is why Aaron likes horror movies and I don't because exactly. I'm at risk of worse. <laughs> so Aaron is Emily's younger sister who's like a snowboarder and a backcountry backpacker and a kayaker and all kinds of other things. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and what, and I think to, to me also explains Claudia, um, because, uh, high sensation seeking is also correlated with ADHD back to my hypothesis that Claudia has ADHD. Um, so, it, you know, they enjoy that, you know, those physiological sensations you mentioned, Anne, of like just your heart beating fast and not being able to breathe and all that stuff. It can be anxiety, but just like we were talking about in the previous episode with that Cornell Bridge study, it can also be excitement, right? And so people that enjoy horror movies and scary things are more likely to interpret those physiological signs of anxiety as excitement and interest. So that's one thing. The other thing that I think disqualifies all of us is that people who are really high in empathy are less likely to enjoy scary things. Mm. So if you're really sensitive and you have a lot of empathy for other people, it's very scary and upsetting to watch people get killed or other people be scared or not know who's going to get hurt when. 
Um, and so there's some data, and again, this is older stuff. So, it, uh, gender is unfortunately like, again, firmly in the bi- binary, but that men and boys are more likely to like horror and scary things than women and girls. Um, now we can have a great conversation about whether that's due to socialization or due to something inherent. Um, obviously yeah. it's probably both. And I think um, that links, we've talked about some of that stuff too, about how like early, childhood socialization is correlated with higher, um, the relationality term. Oh, um, affiliation. Yeah. 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 Um, and then the other thing that comes up that I think is definitely relevant to me and Emily, maybe slightly less with you, although no, I think you have this too, Anne, is that people who, um, and it's very common with women are, have more disgust sensitivity, don't like, uh, horror and scary things. So, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, we were just making disgust faces even about the weird salad and that's not horror by any stretch of the imagination. So if things tend to, if you, if you feel the basic emotion of disgust more frequently, Mm -hmm. um, and anxiety, then you're going to be less likely to enjoy horror. And they actually think that that might be the thing that, um, mediates the sex difference in whether or not you enjoy horror and scary things is how disgust sensitive and how anxiety sensitive are you? So oh. if you're a man that happens to be very high on both of those, you also won't like it very much. So how do you think this correlates to the babysitters? Because there's that one scene where at the slumber party where they decide to split up because mm-hmm. Marianne and Stacy are more scared. Mm-hmm. And then Christy, Don and Claudia are more like not, you know, they're like, well, we want to find mm-hmm. this whatever. And like, so can we make an assumption there that from what you just said, that some assumptions based on the personality? Yeah, I think so. And I think we have a lot of evidence throughout the series that Christy is not particularly high on disgust sensitivity, right? She's the one that like narrates and describes the gross school lunches every day and, you know, is also inoculated against disgust sensitivity by being around three brothers all the time. And so I think she just, just doesn't really worry about it. Whereas Stacy like cannot see anyone throw up no matter what. And we know that Marianne is really sensitive in general. So I think that breaks down very nicely that like Marianne and, and Stacy would be freaked out and not enjoy these kinds of things very much. And Christy, Christy is skeptical, right? So she, she's like, there's not a ghost you guys, but she's also not grossed out and sort of enjoys the fun of being freaked out along with Don and Claudia. So how do you yeah. explain at the end when Stacy is like pretty game to go uh, with Don into the passage and Don's kind of surprised? She's like, "Oh, you're not scared." Um, I think it's that's a good question. I have to, yeah, remind <laughs> me a little bit more of the context. Um, there, it's the second sleepover or the sleepover at the end, and they're. Um, oh, oh, the other girls are making fun of Stacy and Don for not eating junk food and Don's like, I know what we can do to like get them back for poking fun at us. Like we get, let me show you this secret. And she, cause she hasn't shown it, which is also something I would like to talk about. Do you think it's realistic that a 12 year old would not tell everyone that she found that secret passage, put a pin in it. Um, so, so she's like, wait, let me show you this secret thing that I've been going like that I discovered a month ago that I, for some reason, haven't told you about, like we can scare them. And Stacy's like, Oh yeah, I'll go down in there. Mm -hmm. I'm not scared. Um, I don't know. I think she has Dawn with her. She knows that it's, that it's fine. We don't know what they're whispering. And she's like, has a different goal in mind. You know, the point is Mm. not to go down there and freak yourself out. The point is to get back at the other girls. Uh Okay. I can see that. I think that would give her some, give her some bravery in the moment. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I really like about this, and I think is kind of genius of Anna Martin to include these things, is that developmentally, scary stories are really important for kids, actually. And so there's a reason that, like, Goosebumps is so popular and scary stories to tell in the dark and all of those other kinds of things is that um, when you get through a scary story, there's a sense of accomplishment and autonomy and kind of self-efficacy, like... Oh, I managed that, you know, it was, it was frightening, but I got through it. And so I think with these kids on the cusp of childhood and adolescence, it makes sense to me that they're really into that and they're experimenting with that. So that was the other piece of it that I thought was, you know, in terms of the developmental psych kind of spot on. The other thing that I did not like is that Don calls a lot of people crazy in this book. 
to not get a good rating from the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. Um, she worries if she's crazy at one point um, from listening to noises in the hallway. Um, there's a crazy lady down the street. We got a lot about how old Ben Brewer is crazy, but mostly we talk about crazy old Jared Mulray, who was not quite right in the head. Um, and Anne, you want to give us a brief on who Jared was? Yes. So Don's mom, after hanging out with her parents, brings home a book called, was it the history of Stony Brook? Something like that. Stony Brook with an E at the time. And Don finds this part where they're talking about um, this guy named Matthias Bradford. So obviously Bradford Court is named after this guy um, and how he's planning on moving away from Stony Brook. And but the, is Jared his. How is he related? How is Jared related? He's the to banker. Bradford? He's the banker and the, the Mulray family owes him a lot of money. And so they have to leave Stony Brook. Right. But Jared refuses to leave. And no one really knows where he went. They don't know if he left, if he stayed. And his his voice is just kind of heard around town. And it's, you know, they call him crazy. And basically they, you know, Don thinks that the ghost is Jared Moy. It's not just heard around town. It's heard somewhere between the barn and the house, as if he was right between the two, but no one could see him. I thought that part was spooky. You guys didn't think that was spooky? I don't know. A ghost called Jared isn't really scary to me. <laughs> it's like, hey guys, here, Jared. Jared yeah, is coming. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, what would be a creepier ghost name? Also, he's the things he's supposedly doing in the passage are like dropping nickels and eating ice cream. Like, why am I scared of this ghost? <laughs> you guys are terrible. Anyway, my point being that the conflation of mental illness with, um, you know, ghosts and spooky things and potentially hurting people and violence and all of that is very problematic and um, continues to this day, um, continues to be a, a cover for our, you know, national gun violence problem um, when we say like, oh, well, that was because that guy had schizophrenia, not because we have guns that you can buy at a 7-Eleven in some states. Um, so, yeah, um, maybe this is, mm, I was just like thinking about Dawn's push against gun violence in book five, and then she's really undermining it here with all of her blaming of the mentally ill. Yeah. She well, doesn't I mean, she doesn't understand those how those two things overlap. Maybe she'll get that in high school. Yeah. <laughs> but she never gets there, so we'll never know. Although we know she's not learning about climate change. No. We know she's not learning about <laughs> slavery or <laughs> indigenous Wait, people. You guys. In yeah. So so you know the Netflix series. So they kind of mm-hmm. made the whole morbid destiny thing. They kind of wrapped it up well, and they made her into this cooler, like witchy, but like cool witchy woman. And as so, me. if there was and as me, if there was a season two of the Netflix series, would they explore Jared Mulray and explain him? Like, would he like show up as like a friendly ghost? Yeah, that seems like what they're doing. It seems like they're going to have a CGI ghost in season two. I'm here for it. Yeah. I want to see an ice cream cone eating ghost. (laughs) Emily, can you talk to us about the trip man, please? Yeah, let's talk about the trip man. (laughs) This was both hilarious to me and kind of horrifying. I think too, so page 81 is where we first, um, not where we're first introduced to him. We're first introduced to him the chapter before in the abstract. Dawn's mom is going on a date with someone that she knows through her parents proper match from granny and pop pop. And so Dawn is upset for a couple reasons. Yeah. She's upset obviously because actually she has a parenthetical where she says, I only wanted Mr. Spear because of Marianne. I'm like, wow, that's very kind of controlling of you. They want to be stepsisters. <laughs> Mrs. Schaefer has been going on a bunch of dates. And one of them is this guy. Don and Jeff go get really scared. There's a storm. The power goes off. They've been inside the passage. And so Don has to call her mom on this date to come home. And she brings Trip trip <laughs> with her. And on page 81, or bottom of page 80, top of page 81, Jeff and Don sort of go on this little 
bit of a um, bit where they sort of rag <laughs> yeah, they on do a little trip. Bit. They have a little yeah, riffing it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so they, at this point, they had only known his name was Mr. Gwyn. They didn't know his first name. And so Dawn's on the phone with her mom and she says, mom interrupted me before I could finish. Trip and I will be right there. Sit tight, stay calm. And then Jeff says, so what'd she say? And Don says, Mr. Gwynn's name is Trip, was all I could answer. Trip, italicized, can you believe it? And Jeff laughs, oh yeah, man, that is so cool, he says sarcastically. <laughs> and then Don says, I bet he wears pink socks and alligator shirts and his friends call him like the Trip Man or something. And Jeff goes, I bet he plays golf with a snort of laughter. And then Don says, I bet his idea of an amusing afternoon is balancing his checkbook. And I bet he has real short hair wears wire and glasses and has gray eyes, but wears contacts to make them blue. Damn. Jeff laughs so hard, blah, blah, blah. Right? <laughs> so that part was excellent because I think it signals a bunch of things. And tapping into our conversation around like how Dawn is trying to grapple with social class and her kind of position um, vis-a-vis her wealthy grandparents. And we talked a bit in Don and the Impossible 3 about how she sort of praises Watson as a kind of rich person over and above her snooty, like old money grandparents. Uh-huh. And here I think she's like relegating Trip solidly into that snooty old money category. Uh-huh. And she's like, you know, in jest kind of pulling out a bunch of artificial tropes that are then associated with that, that social uh-huh. class and as as something that's bad, right? These are things that are not, we don't want a man around the house who dresses like this and who, you know, who's, these are his interests and these are his mm-hmm. desires, blah, blah, blah. But then Tripp actually shows up and he's, I'm trying to think of an insult that's appropriate. <laughs> kind of a douche. Oh, yeah. He's all, yeah. You know, Don says, like, I have to admit he didn't look exactly as we imagined, but we're pretty close. The frames were tortoise shell, not wire rim. <laughs> His eyes were brown. He's wearing a suit and tie on a date. On a date, by the way, where they went to dessert at her parents' house. <laughs> well, they went out to dinner first, so they could have gone to a fancy dinner. I guess so. Anyway, then Trip just comes in and is like, "Well, why don't I? Why don't I fix the world for you?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He does some pretty amazing mansplaining about and the suddenly fact that, Mrs. Schaefer's yeah. all like, "Oh yes, Trip, won't you please?" Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, "Mrs. Schaefer, come on, you're better than this. <laughs> come on, Sharon, you're an independent woman now." He's very much, yeah. Here, Emily, I I would love to hear in the middle of '85, starting with "I suggest," which I feel like is the 1987 version of "Well, actually." Well, actually. Um, um, I think that you should read uh, the trip man's advice in the tone that you think it was delivered. I'm not very good at that, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> I'm going to accidentally give him a Southern accent again. <laughs> I suggest, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I suggest the trip man went on talking to mom that tomorrow morning, you figure out some way to lock both entrances to the passage or at least the entrance in the barn. I'm sure no one knows about the passage, but since it is another way into your home, you should lock it as you would any door. Definitely. Yeah. Sharon couldn't figure that out. Sharon was just going to leave this entrance to her 12 year old daughter's bedroom. Totally. By the way, I don't know if you knew this, but this passage is another way into your home. Yeah. (laughs) So if you're going to lock the other doors, you should probably lock this one as well. Maybe, but Emily, maybe um, they didn't put it in the chapter where Sharon asks him for advice about this and also where Tripp is like a door and lock specialist. So (laughs) they really Uh needed his expertise here. I forgot about that crucial backstory. Yeah. Would he actually sound like, maybe he would sound like um, Thurston Howell III from Gilligan's Island. Like, would he have one of those, uh, like, posh? Okay, you gotta do it. Do it. (laughs) Okay. I suggest, said the trip man, talking to mom, that tomorrow morning you figure out some way to lock both entrances to the passage, or at least the entrance in the barn. I'm sure no one knows about the passage, but since it is another way into your home, you should lock it as you would any door. That was excellent. Thank you. Thank that you. That made it sound so much worse. <laughs> right? But maybe it <laughs> yeah. did sound like that. It's sort of, I don't know if that was Thurston Howell as much as it was Snagglepuss. It was kind of a combination of the two. <laughs> oh my God. 
Yeah, I guess, I guess now we're in this sort of problem of conflating Mr. Spear of the books with Mr. Spear of the show. Oh yeah. You got to get Mark Evan at Jackson out of your head. I know, but I'm like, okay. So at this point are to the two prospects for Sharon that we've really met are this kind of like very Reagan conservative dude who's really committed to rigid gender roles, but who has, you know, who's done some social class climbing, right. Who's sort of pulled himself Working up class bootstraps. Yeah, yeah. It's like a which good, means, old, good yeah. old boy. Yeah. Which or means he's, this like he's better. Yeah. Or this like wildly snooty trip man mansplainer. But they're yeah. both sexist. Sure. But one of them gets to mean that Marianne and Don get to be stepsisters. So. Yeah, I guess I just want more for Sharon, you know? <laughs> well, what's up for Sharon? Why is she making these choices? Does she have, like, daddy issues? I don't know. Yeah, well, and her and ex. Wow. <laughs> you just turned it back on her. Like, look at the, it's not Sharon's fault that she exists in this patriarchy and in this capitalist system. Yes, it is. No, I'm just kidding. Also, it's not. <laughs> don't worry. Um, yeah, and then her ex-husband, right? We learn is it is what Don dubs a Disneyland daddy. Oh yeah, mm. which was something that I thought we talked up also last time in Don and the Impossible Three about how Don books are always sort of dealing with the different types of divorces um, that exist in the the universe of the Babysitters Club, and this interpretation from Dawn about how her father has turned into what she calls a Disneyland daddy is kind of sad, but like a really, I don't know. It seemed really observant to me and kind of Mm -hmm. like, like she was wrestling with it in this interesting way. Like on the one hand, she kind of understands why he's become that. And on the other hand, she laments like an absence of whatever kind of relationship was there before. But then again, she's also, you know, she knows that Christy has like no relationship with her dad. And so she's like trying to be okay with kind of what she has in a way that I feel that felt like really mature to me. Mm -hmm. Right. She wasn't just dismissive of it. So basically they they go to California, she and Jeff, and they just like have a like all expenses paid vacation for two weeks and like go to beaches and amusement parks and just like have super fun the whole time. And she gets it. Like, she's not just like, who does he think he is? He can't bribe me to still love him, even though he broke up with mom. But she's also not just like, yes, this is awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's just a three sentence summary, right? Of the experience. It was spectacular, except for the fact that a Disneyland daddy doesn't feel like your father anymore. But I guess he's better than no father at all. Gut yeah. punch. But I mean, that's her ex, right? Yeah. So you're saying that Sharon just doesn't have much good raw material to work with, so she can't attract a proper man? I'm not blaming it on Sharon. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm that just, was Anne. That was Anne that was saying What that. I'm saying <laughs> is that men are trash. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Particularly in 1987. It, yes. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Well, there was one other thing that I just wanted to flag because I, in our prologue episode, I noted that one of the areas that I have a PhD in is um, feminist science studies or philosophy of science. And I didn't expect that there would be many themes that would arise in this book that would deal with that. Um, Although we have talked a little bit, because I also studied environmental political thought, so we have talked a bit about sort of climate change and the really broad strokes. But I thought it was interesting in this book how the girls talk about evidence and how they talk about science. It's really brief, but it's sort of part of Dawn's like coming to realization. And what they're doing, I think, is talking about like how do we validate knowledge claims in effect. And so mm-hmm. at one point in the beginning, when they're looking for a secret passage before Dawn has found it. And then for some reason kept it to herself. I'm still, I still don't understand that part. (laughs) Um, She invites the babysitters over and she's like, let's search my house. Let's do it scientifically. And Christy, the skeptic goes scientifically, like, how are we going (laughs) to look for a ghost scientifically? (laughs) But then Dawn does this recurring thing where when she's trying to decide whether or not what she thinks she knows is true, she runs through kind of all of her bits 
of evidence that she's collected and tries to like draw conclusions from them. And then she's constantly encountering people who are questioning her, the, the one, what counts as evidence of Mm -hmm. this ghost and two, her interpretation of that evidence. And I think that it's an interesting, you know, I don't think that Anna Martin is moving to this more critical sort of social, not social constructionist, but socially grounded concept of kind Mm -hmm. of like evidence evaluation and stuff like that. But I do think that that process of like confirming things with your peers is like what we, what, you know, like, feminist science studies would think of as something a little bit more radical than like a community of experts, right. That she's like doing science from below is kind of cool and fun. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, um, and I think, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember that being talked about in these books at all. So I'd be curious to see whether there's more sort of discourse around knowledge, um, knowledge production and evaluation as they sort of move through different lessons and different contexts. That's interesting. My my worry, the other side of that coin, is that like when does that stop becoming just a, a process of seeking knowledge and veer into the territory of using the trappings of science to justify thoroughly non-scientific things, right? Absolutely. So and it's super complicated. It can, yeah. Yeah. And it can get into pseudoscience really quickly. One thing I liked about how Dawn and Sharon were portrayed in the series is that it was really clear they were into spirituality and crystals and things like that, but they didn't try to make extraordinary claims about them so far in the series. Mm-hmm. Like, and I got no problem with your spirituality. I just don't want you to mix it with my science. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, don't pretend that those are the same. Um, and so I think you could see how it could go off the rails um, pretty easily and start using using the trappings of science to justify things that are not scientific, as Christy points out. It's a very Christy comment of mine. And that's, I mean, that's like a coordinated effort in some cases, like right in the context of, you know, historically, like the context of studies on tobacco and whether or not those are harmful and studies around climate change, for example. And so that that coordinated um, effort to sort of use uh, the criteria for the scientific knowledge in, in an offhanded non-critical way to obfuscate scientific um you know conclusions or um consensus is is troubling but i think i think it is interesting to see how like early notions of knowledge production and validation work out in sort of banal contexts right like she's like what do i know about this and like how do Mm -hmm. i know it and then she's like keeps having to revise her conclusions in light of new things that she encounters and i think Mm -hmm. i thought that was kind of cool for sure that was all my stuff there's a lot of movies in this book though i was so excited and what did you think too a lot of book drops and shout outs as well my academic part of this podcast is talking about Cam Gary, who is Marianne's like heartthrob teen crush. Um, and he makes his first appearance when Marianne is hanging out with Dawn in the barn. And she's reading 16 magazine and she's like, gosh, look at this kid, Cam Gary. Isn't he adorable? So I was like, okay, like Anna Martin probably base the idea of Kangari off someone in pop culture during the late 80s. So I did a little research, Google, um, into figuring out who this person might be. Um, so at first, I just like wrote down a bunch of names. I'm so excited right now. <laughs> I just want to say, I'm like, I'm not like, I have the good anticipatory anxiety. <laughs> So at first, I just kind of wrote down a bunch of obvious people. And I was like, okay, there's um, the Corys, Corey Haim. That was my first Corey thought. Seldman, yeah. right? And then I was like, okay, there's like Angie McCarthy, Ralph Macchio, there's like Kurt Cameron, uh, Rob Lowe, uh, Sean Astin. There's like so many, right? And then or Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. the list goes on and on. And because he looks like... Like, we know that Logan kind of reminds her of Cam Gary. Like, we know he has, you know, he has brown hair. He just, he's not a blonde, whatever. So then I was like, okay, let me me see what else I can find. So I just typed in Cam Gary to see what came up, because maybe some fans had written about him or knew something about him. And really the only solid definition that came up was from the Babysitter's Club fandom wiki page. So... (laughs) 
The entry was, Cam Gary is a TV actor with a musical career mentioned a few times in the series. He recorded an album, which was apparently terrible. He has a 14-year-old girlfriend named Corey Lalique. So I was like, okay, well, that gives a lot of parameters into my search. So first, he had to be in TV and also had a pretty bad music career, right? So immediately, a lot of these, a lot of my immediate... (laughs) Wait. Did it say it was bad or did you just add that? No, it said, that's what it said in the entry. It said it was apparently terrible. You didn't say that just now. Yes, she did. Yeah, I did. You did? Okay. You weren't listening. Sorry, I messed that up. I didn't hear that. (laughs) So with all this information, also the Ghost of Dawn's House was published in January of 1988. So I was like, okay, because she's reading about Cam Gary in a magazine, it probably means he was doing something at the time actively in in a TV show or something with his shitty album. So I kind of had to cross-reference all these facts with all these people I just mentioned. So a lot of these people were like, out of like Nick's, like Corey Haim, Corey Feldman had a musical career, but not until the nineties. Like, (laughs) listeners don't say we don't do the work don't say we don't put in the time for you (laughs) yeah so like two hours last night looking at this stuff um so like Kurt Cameron no like all these also a lot of these people didn't do tv so anyway so through all the process of elimination I came up with four choices and (laughs) oh my god (laughs) they're a little upsetting that Marianne could possibly <laughs> be into one of these men. So the best one is River Phoenix. Oh, so you had a musical career? Yes, he did. <laughs> so 1986, Stand by Me. 1988, Running on Empty. 1989, Indie and the Last Crusade. So he would have been very much in the media in, at this year. Um, and mm-hmm. he released his first album in 1989. It was a song co-written with someone named Josh McKay, and it was released on a benefit album for PETA titled Tame Yourself. So I was like, okay, River Phoenix is cool, you know? (laughs) But then the next three are a little suspect. This one I'm okay with too, but okay, we've got Patrick Swayze. (laughs) So, okay. Um, He had a very, he was more of a movie actor, but he was in television. And 1987, he was, Jordy Dancing came out and he's saying she's like the wind. And then also, he also released a couple songs on the Roadhouse, which is another movie he started, Roadhouse, 1989, called Raising Heaven. I hate that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I, that is my least favorite movie of all time. It's a movie about a man who's a world famous bouncer at a bar in the middle of nowhere. None of the women have names. There, he he addresses one woman with a with a, a phrase at all, and he really, really patronizingly calls her Doc. She's an actual fucking doctor, and he tries to explain to her how to do her job, and she doesn't even have a name. I oh, oh, Marianne can't like Patrick Swayze. Also, in 1988, Patrick Swayze was 36 years old. So if he had a 14 year old girlfriend, I feel like we would have heard. I hope we would have heard about it roadhouse is a garbage film <laughs> well also listen this is unscripted emily was not did not know i was going to mention roadhouse this is a very pure reaction <laughs> he literally okay. calls her duck <laughs> all right go for it okay go, go on go on okay. so far i think river's our best candidate yeah. go on and then we have scott Bayo. <laughs> oh no which a very problematic person uh we all know who's very popular in happy days went on to the spinoff Joni loves chachi um so he would have been around in the 80s would have been more in the early 80s but he did have two albums out in 1982 and 1983 both which were horrible self-titled and the boys are out tonight <laughs> oh <laughs> what, what years did charles in charge 
air? Oh, good question. Can you look that up really quick since I know so you're, you're Googling? Yeah, I can look. It debuted in 1984 and aired okay. five seasons. So he's actually a good candidate. He's a good candidate. He have been in 88. Um, um, he was born in 1960, so he would have been 28, but that's 28. not as bad as Swayze. Yeah, but still, and he's still ahead of 14-year-old girlfriend. Yeah. Well, again, I think that's more like, if we're going to make claims, I'm going to pin that on Bayo before I pin that on Swayze. No? You guys yes, with definitely. me? You can hate Roadhouse, yeah. but, don't you feel like- but Scott Bayo is objectively a worse person than, oh, totally. worse person than Patrick Swayze. He's horrible. Um, no. Patrick Swayze okay. is a beloved character, even though I know he was in Roadhouse. Okay, and then the last person, <laughs> the last suspect we have oh, no. is, are you guys ready? David no. Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, back this up, Anne, back this up. <laughs> so, so ridiculous. Okay, <clears throat> so Baywatch came out. Not until 1989, but he was a Knight Rider from 1982 to 1986. And then he came out with uh, two albums. One was called Night Rocker in 1985 and Looking for Freedom in 1989. So past 1988 when when his book was published, but he still would have been around in this era as both a horrible musician and also as a TV actor. So we got River Phoenix. Also, thir- also 36 years old. 36 years old at the time. Stan yes. Swayze. Um, got Patrick Swayze, River Phoenix, Scott Bale, Scott Bale, and David Hasselhoff. So none of them are great. I feel like River Phoenix is what we hope. It, Cam Gary's How based off of. 18. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that's the best bet. Yeah. Yeah. Even though 14 and 18 is, that's our best age difference but we'll, let's just go with that it's, it's not a mandated report it's not a mandated report to child <laughs> protective services in the state of california so i think it's okay right yeah she wasn't in I mean, house, so I don't, yeah. i'm good <laughs> yeah as i made these conclusions i, I got very upset because it started off from like you know the Corys and like like you know Kurt Cameron and all these like cute, you know, teen heartthrobs to like David Hasselhoff and Scott Bale. <laughs> like, anyway. Well, and I also, I, well, but I also feel really bad for Marianne because River Phoenix died while the books were still being published. So does that mean that she has to mourn, mourn Cam Geary? Like, love. do we think he, yeah. Do we think that he also dies at, you know, age 23? We'll never know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Also, I do feel like River Phoenix was maybe, I can't tell if he would have been too, like, edgy for Marianne, really. Like, I feel like she would have been much more of, like, a Corey Haim or Ralph Macchio type girl. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. since at the end of the book, they talk about the movies they want to watch at the slumber party. And maybe Marianne wants to watch a 16 Candles. So I feel like yes. she's into like the whole Jake Ryan type of character. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. I feel like, I feel like Cam Geary could play a Jake Ryan though. Yeah, totally. And I just, I just, before we move on to the movies, I just want to say, I really appreciate you. I feel like <laughs> this is work that no one else could have done quite as well. Gee, thanks. That's me. That's really nice of you to say. It is upsetting though. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're not wrong. It's very upsetting. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, this isn't going the way I wanted it to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, sorry. What did you want to say? You, you wanted to bring us back to these excellent movies. Oh, yeah. So at their in the end of the book, at their slumber party, they all say the movie they want to watch, which is interesting. I'm sure Anna Martin picked out these movies specifically for each of the girls. Christy wants to watch Ghostbusters. Claudia wants Accurate. to watch Star Wars. Clearly the best choice. Stacy, Mary Poppins. We all know she's obsessed with Mary Poppins. Marianne, 16 Candles. And Dawn chooses The Parent Trap because that's her favorite movie. So, which is interesting based on what you kind of talked about earlier in the show about these girls' sensitivities to stimulation and, like, being excited. And she was <clears> like, <throat> Christy... And Claudia both take very action-forward films. 
Mm-hmm. And then we have, of course, Marianne picks like a John Hughes teen romance movie. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> for some unexplainable reason, Stacey loves Mary Foppins, which we've talked about in the past. Well, I think, you know, but as, now that we're talking about like empathy and disgust sensitivity and things like that, it's not mm-hmm. surprising to me that Stacey's really into the rewatch. Like it's comforting. Stacey mm-hmm. needs to like keep herself calm. Um, and so that I, I, it makes sense to me that she and Dawn are both into the ones that they've seen a bunch of times in that mm-hmm. particular way. I don't know. Oh, we really figured it out, guys. Yeah. I can tell you anecdotally that I personally watched the Lindsay Lohan parent trap 1500 times. <laughs> Sometimes if it's, if it's on an airplane TV, I will watch it. Yeah. For example, it's not yeah. bad. I'm, I'm partial to the Haley Mills. I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm older than you and also just love Haley Mills, but I've watched both of them more than, more than a number of times. Yeah. So. Well, my mom is also a big fan of who plays the dad in the Lindsay Lohan one? Oh yeah, um, she is Dennis Quaid. Yes, yeah. Your mom, my loves, mom loves, loves Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Quaid is like your mom's Cam Geary. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I love, I'm sure your mom's gonna love being outed on this podcast. Oh, she Dennis Quaid. Love. She's like president of the Dennis Quaid fan club. Yeah. <laughs> She's fine with it. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Frequency? I wouldn't have either if it wasn't for her. <laughs> <laughs> and as our resident Claudia, how did you feel about Claudia's choice of Star Wars? I mean, I think it's pretty... I feel like Claudia really enjoys just being entertained. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like she's the person who wants to go to the movies and like eat popcorn and candy and drink a soda and just be like really like immersed in the, in the movie mm-hmm. and like the action. So it totally, it totally makes sense because it's kind of like a universe she can live in. Yeah, totally. You know? It's um, It really made me think about, you know, because liking Star Wars is a very unique attribute. Mm-hmm. M- many people aren't into it, you know, um, and <laughs> especially men born in 1976, like my husband. So, um, but it did make me think about how, um, you know, did did I marry a Claudia because of you, Anne? Like, I think I might have, like, <laughs> I think. I've been thinking that for like five episodes. <laughs> As we've gotten to know Anne better. Well, and yes, and Gary's like reaction to podcast related stuff that we're all consuming and talking about. I'm like, oh, you married Anne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's weird. That's, okay. that's Anne, true. Anne kind of married me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. So as we were talking about how these movies fit their personalities would you say these are character traits or personalities or can you know like <laughs> liking ghostbusters is a thousand percent of personality traits. Yeah, I think oh, so too. Guys. <laughs> not psychologist approved audience <laughs> and you had some other theories about this book so in the netflix series we see richard and sharon date and then we know they break up and then they get back together however in this book they kind of just mention that they break up on the side and it's not, nothing is really discussed about it. And I was wondering if we have any theories about why, why they didn't work out and why they broke up. Impotence. I sort of thought that Sharon was just like playing the, you know, she's just coming out of a very serious relationship, right? Like she's, she's been married to Don's dad, presumably for at least 13, 14 years. And so I just figure she's not ready to get into a, a serious relationship right away. And Richard is like, probably almost already proposing because he's been so lonely for so long as we had discussed. Um, so that was my thought in the background. I didn't really spend a lot of, I just, I realized as you asked the question, I just sort of made that assumption. No, I was trying to look and see if there was more context for it in the book. And I feel like Sharon is still really hung up on, on Mr. Spear because I feel like she's dating a lot and she's kind of just throwing herself back into the dating pool, trying to forget Richard. My dating men like there may also trip. be pressure. There may also be pressure from Granny and Pop Pop, right, to be dating the trip man and other of the right kinds of people. Now that she's mm-hmm. back on this Tony Brook social scene, <laughs> kind of what a time the eighties. I can't find the page where Don talks about it the first time. I mean, on 67, she says she's going out with several different men. I didn't remember that they specifically said that she they broke up. 
But just that before she she made some comment like they used to go out, but they haven't really gone out lately. Like when like the first introduction to Marianne or something like that. Oh, here it is. Um, It's on page thirteen at the bottom. Oh, okay, yeah. Mom is so busy with her job. It says she doesn't have time to date him. Not when she's pulling all this random. Yeah, I was just curious how Don introduced the fact that they weren't seeing each other anymore because I feel like we see moments of Don as a narrator being kind of like an astute obser- mm-hmm. uh, a person who's a person that observes. Observant? Observer? Nope. This Observer. is the word you're looking for, I think. <laughs> we see some instances of her being an astute ob- observer of like adult behavior. And so I was curious whether there were any clues in her kind of narrating of it that would mm-hmm. key us in. But I do think it's interesting that she says, oh, it's mom's busy. And then she's like, well, mm-hmm. later she's like, all these other dudes she's dating, meh, I'd rather she didn't. I, I think Esme's hypothesis might be right, that she's I just like not in it for the long haul yet. Yeah. I agree. But impotence is also a good hypothesis. <laughs> Fair. Always a good hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, maybe yeah, he just couldn't, you know, get it up. Well, it got me to thinking because so after Don figures out that it's Nikki Pike who has been in the hidden passage, <laughs> it's me. You're right. I, just, I thought it was really funny that you like hung a lantern on it, like we already said, impotence. And then you were like, yeah, I guess his penis wouldn't rise during sexual congress. <laughs> and so I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> Okay, all right. So at the end of the book, you know, when Don figures out that it's Nikki Pike who has been in the Hidden Passage and kind of leaving all his like bits of ice cream cone and stuff there, she's still hearing moaning. She's still hearing noises in the Hidden Passage. So it's kind of like a cliffhanger. However, I have a theory that it's Mr. Spear who's been entering that (laughs) Hidden Passage. Because, you know, he's trying to scare Sharon back into his arms. Because, you know, if Sharon gets too scared, she's going to oh. call it Mr. Spear and be like, oh, Richie, there's moaning coming from the Hidden Passage. <laughs> because that's how Sharon sounds. I thought you were going to go that he's just in there, like, crying. Masturbating? Like, and trying to be close to her around. <laughs> oh. Esme doesn't like this podcast anymore. <laughs> oh, I mean, there God. is a lot of moaning. They, they emphasize moaning a lot. Yeah, but that's what ghosts do. You don't have to. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of unexplained things, though, right? That's the, that's the other pe- part that I always found creepy as a kid, which I was not scared by this time. Thank you very much. Um, but the, you know, they do, it doesn't explain the buckle and the key and the new key that she finds. Like there's things that Nikki did not drop that weren't in the passage previously, and so she leaves it open ended. Like, yeah, it was mostly Nikki, but also it's probs haunted. I thought the way in which she very unceremoniously dealt with that at the end was really hilarious. Right. Like at the sleepover, she realizes that there are still some some of the bits of the mystery that are left unexplained. And then there's like uh, a noise coming from inside the passage at night, which so she knows it's not Nikki Pike. And all the girls run downstairs to sleep in the living room. And then she says, did my secret passage have a ghost? I ho- I hoped I'd never find out. And then the next morning, they're all like sleepily like, what do we do with the rest of summer? And Stacy murmurs without opening her eyes, go to the mall. And then like the book's over. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> you wanted them to add like six more chapters of them solving the rest of the mystery? No, but I feel like they're not concerned enough about the fact <laughs> that there was someone inside the passage the that prior night was there someone or was there a ghost yeah our ghosts someone's is a good question we know who it was <laughs> <laughs> all right and what what kind of candy was in this book oh well, i mean the only mention was chocolate kisses but it was the debut of claudia's hollow book yes that was Which very exciting, exciting. Um, yes. it was the debut of something Something else not candy related. What, oh, it was the de- debut of them saying to little kids when they draw a picture, tell me about it. Mm, and I wrote them of, down. <laughs> <laughs> which I still I, use to this day. And I yeah. 
thought yeah. you were going to get uh, um, say smorgasbord, but oh, that too. <laughs> also, still used to this day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I didn't, when Mallory said my mom likes us to use up the leftovers, I was like, "Oh, Deep Hike, you're singing my song. Uh, now I relate to you more. I don't think you're as crazy." Oh, we actually got a, a listener comment about. Um, the pikes hmm. and why they have so many kids. I know we talked about that a lot in the last episode, but that um, she thought she assumed growing up that they were Irish Catholic in heritage. And so even though they're clearly not super observant in the books that they're, they were still probably culturally Catholic and the big families were just sort of normal to them. Mm-hmm. And so while they may not have like a specific prohibition against birth control, that they just, just assume we'll have as many kids as we have um, as mm-hmm. part of that kind of cultural Catholic legacy. Interesting. Yeah, I yeah. can see that in that part of the yeah. New England. That's a good point. Give a shout out to Abby NVM on Instagram for that comment. Yes. Thank you for your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you guys. Um, I So you don't count s'mores as candy, Anne, even though they have ingredients that... No, not really. Okay. I mean, it's also just it's not like candy. Candy. But it's just not hers. Right. It's like, you know, I'm thinking of things that she procures for herself. Oh, like solely. what Claudia brings out in meetings. Yeah, <clears throat> yes. fair enough. Okay. Okay. So tallies in this book. Um, I don't have a column for crazy because it hasn't come up as much in other books. But um, if I did, it would have been seven. Um, the other social justice thing that came up, there were two. One, Don refers to Stacy as a diabetic. Um, which is, you know, not how we try to talk about disease and disease states in 2020. We would say a person with diabetes. Stacy is not her diabetes. Um, and then they also find an Indian head nickel in the uh, passage. And we were thinking about that. I mean, those were historical things that existed in the United States. And they didn't use Indian except referring to that. And I don't know if that counts or not. It seems like Many Native Americans have reclaimed Indian and use it to describe themselves. And it wasn't used in a like pejorative or co-opting way. It was just describing the nickel. I don't know. What did you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think linked to some of the other discussions we've had around Don's like understanding of Stony Brook's sort of historical landscape, it fits the the moment, right? That it like it's one of the things that signals to her the potential of a ghost because that that it d- is linked to the moment in time in which it was minted or right. used. And so I think in that sense, it sort of makes sense, but yeah, I, I pause there as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dawn does refer to Claudia as exotic. So that comes back around. So we're exotic. We're up to two. Um, Marianne's sensitive, also up to two. Marianne shy, 14 was twice in this book. Stacy sophisticated once to bring her total to 10. Christy bossy once, bring it up to 12. And Christy or Marianne babyish didn't come up in this book. Um, so that's where we are on the tallies. That's interesting. We're in the tens on a couple of them and we're only in book nine. <laughs> yeah. Well, Marianne saves the day really brought all the tallies way up high. <laughs> that stupid fight. Uh, what was everyone's favorite weird line? I found this book harder for weird lines. I don't know about you guys. Same. I didn't think there were as I many. Me too. Um, the two I have are, are times when Anna Martin phonetically spells when people can't speak um, f- fully for different reasons. So one was when um, Claudia's babysitting for Jamie Newton and he won't go to sleep and she tells him to stay there and not move a muscle. And when she comes back in the room and asks him to get his PJs on, he doesn't move because he's being literal about it. And he says, and I oof. Um, to ask, can I move? <laughs> Just because I was like so dumb. And then the same thing at the end, they're listing all of these summer things they want to do in the last few days of summer before school starts. And Marianne is like still asleep in her pillow. And so she says, have a foo-fow um, into the pillow, which is apparently have a cookout. <laughs> so those were my two. I like have a foo-fow. That's very good. Yeah, but there weren't a lot of one-liners. I had one Jeff line that was that I cracked up at uh, on page seventy five. He says, "Oh, for cripes' sakes!" <laughs> Both are one is possessive, and the other one is plural. Oh, that's good. 
I like that. I don't even know how you could say that, like, with any (laughs) modicum of naturalness. Like, yeah, you had to really enunciate there. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, for crap's sakes. I mean, I like both of the lines you said. I didn't really, there weren't a lot of one-liners, but I did like it when, when Claudia mumbled s'more s'mores because it's like such, it's like a really obvious dumb joke, but she said it, said it anyway. S'more s'mores. <laughs> s'more Classic s'mores. Claudia. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like all, I like all three. Should we do a foo-fow? Sure. You guys like have, have a foo-fow? foo-fow? We can do that. Let's do it. Oh, it's, it's heavy a foo-fow. So it's got two E's on it. Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> All right. What should we pizza toast to? Impotence. <laughs> kidding. Cottage cheese. <laughs> no. Ew. <laughs> Ghost <Gross. House>? named <laughs> Jared. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. <laughs> we will not be pizza toasting to Roadhouse. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Ghost named Jared. If what would Jared's brothers be named? Like Greg, Scott, Kyle, <laughs> Kyle, <Yeah>. Greg. <laughs> yep, those are all his brothers. Blaine, okay. Jared's brothers. Wow. Okay, is that what we're doing? No other big themes in this book. <laughs> so I guess what we're, I think what we're coming to the conclusion is this book didn't really have a lot of meat in it. Yeah, I feel like this is the first one that is, is it's about the plot and it's not about a lot of, like the, the babysitters don't change very much, right? Their relationships don't change. Dawn doesn't grow a ton in this book. Like, it's just about being 12 slash 13. Like, it's like the last two weeks before eighth grade starts is what this book is, which means, by the way, we're about to step into the time loop, you guys. Oh, maybe. So, oh, um, so why don't we... Forward. Why don't we pizza toast to like the end of seventh grade? Fair enough. Yeah. Pizza toast to the end of seventh grade. To the end of seventh grade. And this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both the local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org backslash shop backslash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling deeply generous and you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. Bye.